Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day, for the chance to serve you as ambassadors in our various walks of life. We all come into this room, Father, from somewhere, having walked through this day in various roles and various stations of life. But in all cases, Father, we shared one common mission. We were all by the Spirit commissioned to be your representative here and to speak the truth and to represent it by our lives as ambassadors for Christ. But like any person with a mission or with a task, with a calling, we must be prepared for that work. We must ready ourselves for what may come. We must prepare ourselves for whatever you bring us. And Father, this is the moment, one of many, I hope, in which we will receive that preparation. I pray that the Spirit would be teaching us through everything we learn tonight, not only about things old, but things present. Not only about your work in the past, but also about your work to be done yet here now. And we ask that we would be attentive, listening to the words that I might speak and words that are written in Scripture, but most of all, hearing from your Spirit, Father, as you teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 27. I should also mention that the Armstrong family had a sad episode this week. We lost a pet. No, it wasn't the poodle, because once a demon indwells a body, it's immortal. The poodle will never die. No, we lost our bird. We lost our parrot. Let's go into the text of Exodus 27 is where we pick up. We are continuing with our study of the tabernacle and of its relationship to Christ. So far, we have covered the construction of the tabernacle itself in chapters 25 and 26. We looked at the foundation, the walls, the veil, the curtains, etc. We studied how each of those things in some respect either pictures Christ as a type or is simply illustrative of Christ. We also studied most of the furniture of the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, which are inside the tent proper. We looked at the ark, we looked at the mercy seat, the lampstand, the table of the showbread or the table of the presence. But we still have one other piece of furniture that we need to study in the Holy Place, that is the altar of incense. That has not been described yet. That will come later in chapter 30. Today we're going to study the outer courtyard and one piece of furniture in the courtyard. We're going to also learn about the priesthood and some of their duties. Most of their duties are actually recorded in Leviticus, but there are a few things we'll learn about in Exodus. And we'll also look at their garments tonight, uh, the things they were appointed to wear and then how they were consecrated as a priesthood will come up in some later chapters. So tonight we're going to start in chapter 27 with... The brass altar. Let's go to chapter 27. We'll read chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. And you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pails for removing its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the ring so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain. So they shall make it. So the altar was not designed in the way that you and I typically see altars today. Now, in this picture, the altar is this object sitting in the courtyard in front of the tabernacle. Looking at it a little more closely, it's a square box made of wood, of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. Or you could also say brass instead of bronze. The word in Hebrew could mean either one. The box was, in our measurements, seven and a half feet square on each side and four and a half feet high. So it would stand up to about chest level on me. The corners of the altars had horns protruding outward. And inside the box, halfway down, was a grate made of brass also, which sat upon a ledge that ran around the inside of the altar halfway down. The entire altar was carried using wooden poles that were also covered in brass. 
Now, the altar is often portrayed as sitting on high ground, on a raised part of the ground. There is no prescription in the Bible for doing that, but it has always been seen as that. It's a consistent feature of ancient descriptions. In fact, the word altar actually means high place. The design of the altar was specifically made for one purpose, for sacrificing. Animals were killed and cut into pieces. Those pieces were placed within the box of the altar on top of the fire that was burning on that grate. And that fire inside the altar was left burning continuously on this grate. The grate was designed, as you might imagine, like a barbecue to ensure that the oxygen reached the fire from underneath. That's why it's halfway down inside the altar. And the pieces of meat were then placed on top of the wood coals as it burned, and then they burned with the wood. They became ash. The ashes fell through to the bottom. And then periodically the ashes were removed by the priests. The tools that they needed to tend to the fire were all made of brass as well. There was pails, there were shovels to remove the ashes from underneath the altar. There was a fork to reposition the meat as it burned on top of the coals. There were basins to hold the blood of the sacrifice because blood had to be carried from the altar inside the Holy of Holies at times. And there was a fire pot. Now, fire pot was used to actually move coals, burning coals from this fire into holy place. And it was used then to light the fire on the altar of incense that burned inside the holy place. Now, that's the one thing we haven't studied yet that's inside. But the fire for that altar came from this altar. So the altar was positioned inside the court of the tabernacle in a very specific place. This is a diagram looking downward on the entire compound with the tabernacle tent on the left as you look at it. In this court, you see the tabernacle positioned to the left, what would be the west side. And then to the east side is the altar. Further east is the gate, the only entrance into the compound. The fire in the altar was never allowed to go out for as long as the tabernacle stood. And as the tabernacle was initially stood up the very first time by Moses and commissioned by God, the fire that began the altar burning was lit by God himself. We don't know exactly whether it was fire down from heaven or a lightning bolt or how he did it, but the Bible tells us that the fire in that altar was actually started by God and never allowed to go out. It was here that the Jews brought their sacrifices as required under the law, In addition to the sacrifices that were required by individuals as they sin under the terms of the law, they had to bring a sacrifice accordingly. The priests also conducted daily sacrifices required by the law. Every morning and every night, they would bring a sacrifice of a lamb. So twice a day, there were two lambs every day sacrificed at this altar. Plus, in between, you had the individuals of Israel coming in and sacrificing according to the requirements of the law for personal sin. These sacrifices always involved the same process. The animal's blood was poured out through a slitting of the throat so that the blood would drain from the body as it's held up. The blood at that point would be taken and collected. It would either be applied to the horns of the tabernacle, that is those protrusions from the four corners uh, of the tabernacle, the altar, from the protrusions on the corners of the altar, those little horns. They'd either smear blood on the horns of that altar or they would smear it on the horns of the altar that's inside the holy place, the the smaller altar of incense, which we'll study later. It also had four little horns. So in some cases, the law required to be done to the outer altar, and in other cases, the priest had to take it in and do it to the altar in the holy place. In either case, the bulk of the blood was poured out at the base of the altar in the outer court. So only a small amount was needed for smearing on the horns. If the blood was not brought in and smeared on the altar of incense, then the priest had to eat some of the sacrifice that was made at the altar on the outside. Something was going to go inside the holy place, either the blood or the meat as it is taken in by the body of the priest when he walked in later. So there was always some aspect of the sacrifice that was moved into the holy place in one case or the other. So if we were to enter the gate of the tabernacle, we need to imagine a raised brass box continually burning. And at the base of the altar, there would literally be a river of congealed blood running away from it. And on the horns of the altar would be dried smears of thousands of applications of blood. And the priest continually bringing sacrifices to the altar, killing, 
draining, burning, and periodically removing the ashes. This is all day, every day. So that's the scene you're met with as you walk in. An altar, one of blood and death continually, blood being spilled for sin, the death of innocence being caused by the sin of men, the burning of flesh for sin, and that's the first thing you see when you walk into the compound of the tabernacle. In all of these details, the altar presents a clear illustration of Christ and his sacrifice. First of all, nothing else of the tabernacle is even visible to you, much less available to you as a worshiper, until you have first encountered the altar of God. Likewise, no one can enter the house of God, that is, the body of Christ, the people of God, unless they have encountered Christ on the cross. And the altar is a picture in all its detail of Christ on the cross. So the cross was the place where the Lord himself was made to be a sacrifice for the sins of God's children. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin, and then for sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So just like a visitor to the tabernacle couldn't bypass the altar to go to some other place, you could not go anywhere else in the compound before you had taken your sacrifice to the altar. There was nothing else to be done. That was your ticket to entry, if you think of it that way. So the altar becomes not only the first thing, but the necessity for entrance and experiencing anything else that God may offer in that place. And likewise, we in the world today cannot get around the cross of Christ and still find community or enjoyment in the body of Christ. Paul says that clearly in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the message of the cross is foolishness, the scripture tells us, to people who have yet to have received the power of God. That is the spirit of God, the word of God in their heart. And so it is a stumbling block. And that's the picture that's created by the presence of the altar at the very opening of this temple compound. You can't get past it. You either reconcile with it, so to speak, or you have nothing to do with anything in the compound. The cross of Christ is the place that our journey with God in faith begins. That is, by the way, also a reason why in the preaching of the gospel and in the presentation of the word of God, churches make a grave error when their approach is to minimize the blood of Christ, minimize the cross, minimize the penalty of sin and the necessity for sacrifice to atone. In other words, to minimize the entire gospel as it relates to the cross and the sacrifice of Christ at the fear of offending people and move on to other things. There is no other thing without that. The rest is meaningless to the unbeliever. It has no relevance. The cross is the place at which our sin is dealt with. Having been dealt with by faith in Christ's sacrifice, now the world opens to us. The world of God and his word and his people open to us. But it is not available to those who have yet to meet Christ on the cross. The materials of the altar also represent Christ in the fact that they represent judgment poured out on Christ on the cross. For example, we've already noted the entire altar is wood covered in brass or bronze. We already studied last week how the wood that's used in the tabernacle in various places, the acacia wood, is a picture of Christ's humanity because it comes from the earth as Christ was born of flesh. And yet acacia wood has that interesting quality that it does not deteriorate in the climate of the desert like other wood does. So Christ's body was not deteriorating in the grave when he died. But it is covered with something in every case. 
So in the case of the altar, it's covered with brass because brass is always a symbol or picture of God's judgment fires. You'll see that represented in other places as well. Jesus having feet of glowing brass to represent his judgment, his role as judge. And elsewhere in scripture, you'll see that picture. Furthermore, though Christ received the judgment of God and experienced the fire of God's wrath, his body was not consumed by that wrath, by that judgment. Similarly, the wood that's underneath all that brass in that big box is not being consumed by the fire that's burning in it. The horns also represent Christ. Now, how is that true? Well, in two ways. Horns are often a picture in Scripture of power and might. The power of God is demonstrated in Christ's power to cover all sin. The power of Christ to conquer sin and death by his death is denoted by those horns. And there's even Psalms that speak to the power of God in his horns on the altar. So it's a very clear reference in Scripture when you go looking for it. The second way horns represent Christ here is the horns of the altar were the place that the priest would tie up the sacrificial animal so it wouldn't move or get away in the course of it being sacrificed. Well, in the same sense, Christ held himself to the cross. Men built the altar according to God's direction, right? Just as Romans built the cross according to their own specifications. But Jesus placed himself on that cross. And that is pictured by the way the horns hold the sacrifice to the altar. Jesus is pictured in the horns. He held himself to the altar. Finally, the blood of Christ was shed at the cross, which is clearly pictured by the altar. His blood was poured out at the base of the cross when that soldier pierced his side as you remember from the story. And as I've already said, the animal's blood was spilled out at the base of the altar any time the animal was sacrificed. This is also a picture of Christ. And then there is the blood applied to the horns of the altar. And in heaven, we're told, Christ applied his own blood to the heavenly altar in the heavenly tabernacle, symbolized by the priest doing it to the horns of the earthly altar. We learned that in Hebrews 9:11. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He cleansed the holy place with his own blood, a holy place that is not made by human hands, the one that is in heaven. The high priest had the responsibility to take the blood of the sacrifice into the holy place on the day of atonement. So Christ did so by his own blood as he entered the true holy tabernacle of heaven after his own death. Even the altar's raised posture, as we saw earlier, where it sits on raised earth, even that pictures Christ in the sense that Christ was raised up above the ground on a cross. In fact, you can more clearly understand another event in Israel's history in the desert when you compare it to the, what we've learned now about the tabernacle. I'm referring to the event in Numbers 21 in which the Lord gets angry with the Israelites once again for their grumbling against Moses. And in that particular case in Numbers 21, he sends fiery serpents among the people and the bite of those serpents kills the people in the camp of Israel. Through Moses, the Lord gives the people a chance to live through this judgment. Moses is told to construct a brass or bronze serpent and stick it on a staff and then hoist it up in the air and walk through the camp. And everyone in the camp of Israel who looks upon that serpent would be saved from the bite of that serpent and they would live. Now, everybody gets a little confused about that story because it feels a bit mystical and paganistic almost. And then you wonder, why is it a serpent on a stick? That seems like the opposite symbol for what we would normally expect. Well, from Gospel of John... In chapter 3, we're told that the serpent on that staff was intended to be a picture of Christ lifted up on the cross. And so we can now understand how the symbols of that serpent match the meaning of Christ by way of the altar. First, the serpent we know is always a picture of Satan, the serpent of old, and more particularly of his handiwork in the garden. That is, of the way he brought men into a state of sin. And the result of the serpent's work in that regard is death, death for all. So in the camp of Moses, you have serpents running rampant, biting men, causing death. A great picture of Satan's work among men. But Christ became sin for us 
as pictured by that serpent hanging on that stick. In other words, the serpent is a picture of sin. And Christ became sin for us in that he was putting himself in our place on the cross. So in that respect, the serpent becomes a symbol. And of course, the serpent was made of brass, which signifies God's judgment. So you take all the signs together. You have a brass serpent on a stick. You have God judging the sin that came from the enemy by his deception in the garden and Adam's fall with him being judged on a pole representing the cross. All of that is picturing Christ's work. It doesn't picture Christ the person. It pictures Christ's work. And by his work, what is available to the people of Israel? If they look upon, if they accept the work of that picture of Christ, they are saved from the death of the curse created by those serpents. Everyone who looks upon Christ in faith will receive eternal life. And so the altar carries those same symbols, brass for judgment, sin resulting in death, pouring out of blood as a measure of that. So continuing in our outward movement, remember we said at the beginning of this study of the tabernacle that the description begins at the center of it all in the tabernacle, at the Holy of Holies and the ark and the mercy seat right there at the very heart of everything that this building was meant to accomplish. And then the description of it moves outward from that point. Now we're moving to the most outward part of the tabernacle, that is, to the boundaries of the tabernacle compound itself. Verses 9 through 19. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side there shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And its pillars shall be 20 and there are 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and the bands shall be of silver. Likewise, for the north side in length, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long and its 20 pillars with their 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver for the width of the court on the west side. There shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And for the other side shall be. Hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets for the gate of the court. There shall be a screen of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver and their four pillars and their four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands with their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the width 50 throughout and the height five cubits of fine twisted linen and their sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in all its services and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So the court was framed by a fence constructed of linen and wood pillars. And the pillars were set in bronze or brass. The linen curtains were suspended by silver hooks. And the dimensions of the court were 150 feet by 75 feet. And the wall rose seven and a half feet. There was a gate on the eastern wall so that once you entered the tabernacle, you moved east to west. Now, students of my studies will remember that in Scripture, east has a certain meaning designated to it. West has a certain meaning designated to it. East is always associated with sin or the enemy or evil or unbelief. West is always associated with the promised land, God's people, righteousness, faith. And so you always see that represented in the scripture. You'll see Abraham being called from the east and sent to the west. Cain going from the west to the east. And in the final days of this age, you'll see the enemy headquartered in Babylon to the east and the Jews fighting him, essentially, or being attacked by him in the promised land to the west, in Israel to the west. So the the east-west picture is clear in scripture. It's reflected even in the tabernacle. You walk in from the east, sinful, needing atonement, requiring sacrifice, and as you move westward, you get closer and closer to God, as it's represented by the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. The court that was created by this wall, the inner part of it, in other words, is called the court of the Jews. In this section created by the wall, only Jews could enter. In fact, the entire structure of the tabernacle made a point by its very design of inclusion and exclusion. For example, only God's chosen people could enter the tabernacle ground. So you could not walk inside that space unless you were Jewish, period. No exceptions. Gentiles were therefore forbidden to ever enter the outer court. This was something for God's chosen people only. The law of Moses established that barrier. That's why that was true. The law created by this structure a partition 
between Jew and Gentile. There could have been no more visible reminder of that division than the outer wall of the tabernacle. And among Jews, only Levites could enter the holy place. So the first door into the tabernacle structure itself, the holy place, that was available only to Levites, only to priests. So unless you were born in the tribe of Levi, you'd never see the inside of that building ever. And then only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, and then only one day every year on the Day of Atonement. So during this one-day event, the high priest offered atonement for the sins of the nation under the covenant they had with God. All of these partitions, these exclusions that are created by the design of the tabernacle, all of these walls of partition were broken down and removed by Christ through his sinless life and through his sacrifice. First... Paul says that the outer partition, the thing that separated Jew from Gentile, was taken down by Christ. In Ephesians 2, 13, Paul says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you, and he's speaking to Gentiles, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. So by his death on the cross, Jesus removes This partition, the outer partition of the tabernacle structure, which represents that division that is created by the existence of the law. Jesus eliminated the division because in his sinless life and death on the cross, he satisfies, he completes the requirements of the law. And in him, in our resting in that work, we by his work also meet the terms of the law. We are considered to have been law keepers by virtue of his righteousness, not our own. So we meet the terms of the law. Having completed the law and put the law away in that respect, now there is no law remaining to establish a partition between the Jew and the Gentile. That's why Paul says that by his flesh, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Paul uses this as a way of referencing the law, which he says is the commandment of the law. So first, that division no longer exists because of Christ. Secondly, Christ eliminated the division of a priesthood. Now, you know and I know that many churches still maintain a division of laity versus clergy or laity versus priesthood. There is no such biblical designation. Christ, in fact, eliminated any division of such thing. That the division of a priesthood among God's people has been put to an end by the end of the law of the covenant. Hebrews 7, 11 through 16 tells us that. Hebrews 7, 11 says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law... Well, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of law, but physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Now, that's a lot to digest. In fact, I'd encourage you to go to the Hebrew study if you really want to get into that. But in summary, the law of Moses established a priesthood through the family of Aaron. We're actually going to look at that later tonight. And through Aaron and his descendants only, Priests could serve in this building according to the law given to Moses. If you weren't of the tribe of Levites and Moses and Aaron descend from the Levites, if you were not of that tribe, then you had no opportunity to ever serve as a priest. But Jesus, we're told, was not born of the family of Levi. He was born in the family of Judah. So he would not have been qualified to serve as a priest under the law, which is further proof to us that there is now a new law in effect because he is now our priest of a different order, made so not by the law or some physical requirement, the the writer of Hebrews says, that physical requirement being who your father is, 
but rather it says by the power of an indestructible life. He comes in a different order, not the Aaronic order, but a Melchizedek order, an order that gains its authority by the fact that it's never had a beginning and never has an end. It's an eternal priesthood created by God himself. Christ is that high priest for us. So by his death, he fulfills and puts an end to the law. And that means there is a change of law. The old law is gone. A new law has come in its place. And that new law, which we've talked about in here already, the new law of Christ, brings with it a new priesthood. Because Jesus serves in a different order, he is not defined by physical characteristics. He's defined by immortality. And here's where it matters to us. All who are born again in Christ share in his lineage, are children of him, no longer children of Adam. We, like Aaron's sons, are born of a priest and therefore are priests with him in a new order, under a new law. So all who are of Christ are priests and all then who are priests have the right to enter the holy place. So none of God's people seek Christ through some other earthly representative. Peter says this clearly, calling us all part of a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2, 9. But he says, you are, speaking to the believers, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you notice your chosen race in the same way that the Jews were a race? a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All these are terms that were applied to to Israel and are true of Israel, but now have been extended also to be true of Gentiles by faith in Christ. And so we all are priests. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to wear the white collars and the robes and so on. That's the ritualistic view of priesthood that's been assigned under certain traditions, but it is not the biblical view of priesthood. The biblical view of priesthood is not what you look like or even what your role is. It's who you're of. It's where you trace your birth back to, your line back to. And we are of a priesthood that is royal and is chosen by God. And by our faith in Christ, we entered into it. Then thirdly, Jesus is our high priest who has entered the Holy of Holies in the heavenly tabernacle. And he lives to make intercession there for his children, not on a one day of year basis, but on a daily basis. Hebrews 7 again, 723 says the former priests on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So while the high priest of the law was excluded 364 days of the year from entering the Holy of Holies, Jesus is present in the Holy of Holies 365 days of the year. So that's the sense of Scripture when it says we approach boldly before the throne. Not that we have the ability to stand in the holy place, much less the Holy of Holies, on our own. And that's by which we can go boldly. I, I don't want to give you the wrong impression that I think some people have, which is that this statement of go boldly before the throne means we in our own power and our own flesh could stand before Christ and God the Father now and make our own case. That's not what that phrase is speaking to. It's speaking to the fact that we can ask for Christ's intercession on our behalf in that regard as our high priest. And he is ever present with the Father. He can make that request for us and is ever ready to do so because he knows what it's like to be in our position. And so we have a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews says. The law presented through the tabernacle's design a series of barriers and exclusions to make the point that by sin we were unable to approach God and that it took things God had to do in choosing or in enabling or allowing men to approach him. Those barriers are all broken down in Christ. Now, in the remainder of what we're going to do tonight, the law now transitions to a discussion of the priesthood garments. And some of the duties. Now, I want you to keep in mind, we have not yet covered two pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, which we have to come back to the labor and the the altar of incense. They've been left for later because of their significance. Remember, everything we've described from the center outward so far has dealt with a certain kind of purpose, with dealing with sin, with approach of God, with the work of Christ in allowing us to approach. 
The things that remain have more to do, though, with our sanctifying efforts as believers than they do in how we enter that relationship. So they've been put to the later part. For now, we're going to start to talk about the priesthood. And there's a very little section at the end of chapter 27, verses 20 and 21, which begin to introduce the priesthood by virtue of speaking about their role and their mission. And in one case here, their duties in the tabernacle. Verses 20 and 21. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. And it shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. So those last two verses just begin to introduce the duties of the priests. And the first duty they have is responsibility to beat oil from olives to create the fuel for this lamp that we already covered. The lamp has to burn continuously. Remember, we mentioned that last time. It could never be extinguished. And in these instructions, the beating of the olives to make the oil, to light the lamp, there is another illustration of Christ there. We know the lamp itself already is an illustration of the light of God's truth or the light of God's word. God's truth or word is a lamp to our feet. And Christ is the word, so it pictures Christ illuminating us by truth in his word. It also pictures the Holy Spirit in the way oil is a picture of spirit in Scripture. And in this case, you have the seven lamps representing the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit or the completeness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Isaiah gives us that description in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. In describing Jesus, Isaiah says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Altogether, there were seven spirits mentioned in that verse. So these are all of the same spirit, of course, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But in the seven descriptions and the number seven meaning completeness, the sense of it then is the whole of the Holy Spirit rested on Christ. And we know that was true from when he was commissioned in ministry and received the Holy Spirit visibly as a dove descending. That was the Spirit coming upon him for ministry. And Jesus had the Spirit in a way that even we don't have. He had a fullness of the Spirit that was complete and total for the work that he did in ministry. The lamp is perpetually lit, which is a sign of Christ's constant presence in the life of every believer by his presence of Spirit living in us. The light never goes out, the Spirit in us never goes out. One of the roles of the priesthood, then, is to beat out the oil for the illumination of the lamp. And the servants of God, you and I today, serving as priests today, we can, in fact, we should put our own efforts into working with the Holy Spirit to gain an understanding of God's word. So if you think of the crushing of the olives as picturing the labor of the priests to find the truth of the spirit in the things that we endeavor to learn by his word, and yet... Unless the Holy Spirit illuminates our efforts, unless he gives us an understanding of God's word and gives us the the true knowledge of it, we can't share that light with others. In other words, the burning of that oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit bringing illumination to the word of God for the believer. Unless the Holy Spirit ignites the oil, I guess you could say, our efforts cannot produce illumination. So there is a twofold process, effort to learn, Holy Spirit's illumination for us to understand. All right, now we're going to read chapter 28, verses 1 through 39. And the reason is because it's one continuous description of the garments for the priesthood, what they wear and how they're described. So we want to get a complete understanding of it. There's no reason to cut it into, into pieces because the description just flows. So let's just read 39 verses of Scripture and see where we go. Verse 1. Then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe, and a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. 
Then they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends that it may be joined. The skillful woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material, of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their name before the Lord on the two shoulders for a memorial. You shall make filigree settings of gold and two chains of pure gold. And you shall make them of twisted cordage work. And you shall put the corded chains on the filigree settings. You shall make a breast piece of judgment. The work of a skillful workman, like the work of the ephod, you shall make of it. Of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. The second row of turquoise, sapphire, and a diamond. The third row of jacinth, an agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row of beryl, and onyx, and jasper. And they shall be set in gold filigree. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. You shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. You shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold and shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the two cords of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. You shall make two rings of gold and shall piece them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, close to the place where it is joined above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it shall be on the skillfully woven band of the ephod that the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be opening at its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work like the opening of a coal of mail so that it will not be torn. You shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material all around on its hem and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell, and a pomegranate all around on the hem of the robe. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord, so he will not die. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it, like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen and shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash the work of a weaver. In the opening of chapter 28, Aaron and his sons are identified as the family who will carry the burden of Israel in the priesthood throughout all the generations of Israel. And their garments are described here. Now, the first garment that's described, the longest one, in fact, is the one for only Aaron, who in this day, of course, is the first high priest. And so these are the garments that were worn specifically by that one person. There would only ever be one high priest at a time or should have only been one high priest at a time. It wasn't always that way. The garments worn by the high priest consisted of six major pieces. These garments, this collection of pieces was required for Aaron or any high priest to work in the service of the tabernacle. The priestly garments were intended to consecrate both Aaron and his sons, all the priests. The word consecrate just means to dedicate to holiness. And the priests were wearing garments that set them apart from the rest of Israel for the duty they performed in the holy place. 
Also in verse 2 and elsewhere, the garments are said to be for beauty and for glory. So there was also a bit of eye-catchiness intended here. They're supposed to stand out. Now we're going to examine each item briefly. The ephod and the breastplate is that square piece that's right on the front of him, and it extends up to the shoulders. That's all one piece. The ephod was the parts that sat on the shoulder. The ephod was gold woven and worn on the shoulders with those onyx stones set in gold filigree up on top. On each stone were engraved six of the twelve names of the sons of Israel. The oldest six were on the right, the youngest six were on the left. And then coming down from them by those cords, you found attached then the solid gold square that had the inset twelve jewels, each jewel then representing one of the tribes of Israel. Behind that plate was a gold chainmail pouch, which they held the Urim and Thummim in, two rocks, two stones that were held in the pouch behind the breastplate. So you can't see it here, but he could reach in from behind and pull them out anytime he wanted. They were given to Israel to discern God's will on questions that the nation brought before the Lord. The word Urim means light or illumination. The word Thummim means perfection or completion. The Septuagint translates the two as revelation and truth. Together they represent complete illumination. That's the best way to understand. So the two together is complete illumination from God. When the high priest wanted to ask God a question, he would have to phrase the question in the form of a yes-no answer. And then he would cast the lots. Some have said that the stones would light up, but I don't see that in Scripture. I see it as casting lots. And as you cast these lots, somehow in the way they turned out, they could communicate yes and no. I'm not exactly sure how that must have looked. But the effect was you ask yes and no questions, almost like a magic eight ball. Everyone's thinking that, right? And the answer came up. This method of discerning God's will was far less efficient than having a prophet sent to speak to the people, right? But it did give Israel divine direction in the face of difficult questions. It was evidence that through the high priest, God could speak to his people on specific questions or address specific concerns. Now, the stones themselves were not special, except that God had designated them to be so. They remained in the possession of the priests until the Babylonian captivity. And when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, they were lost, as was the ark. And they were never found after that. That event also ushered in the period of time in Scripture called the Age of the Gentiles or the Times of the Gentiles. That time is still ongoing, a time in which God has brought judgment to Israel for their sins under the Old Covenant. And that period will continue until, as Daniel tells us, Christ's return for the nation and the inauguration of the kingdom. So from now until Jesus' second coming, the age of the Gentiles is in effect. And one of the qualities of the age of the Gentiles is the Jews do not have sole possession and control over Jerusalem and their Temple Mount, nor will they ever again until Christ's return. That's a part of the judgment they have been under since the time of the Babylonian captivity. The meaning of the breastplate and the ephod is already really given to us to bear the burdens of Israel. The jewels and the onyx stones that are engraved with the names, all of those things represent the people of Israel. And so their high priest, the people's high priest, was bearing the people's burdens, their sins, as he went about performing his duties in the holy place and once a year in the Holy of Holies. So he was bearing them and it was on his heart, so to speak, as he went about his duties. So this was visible reminders for him and the people that this one man carried their burdens before the Lord as he did his work in the tabernacle. Symbolically, of course, he is representative of Christ, for Christ is the one bearing not only our burdens of sin on the cross, but now as our intercessor, our high priest, he bears our daily burdens interceding for us as we lift those burdens to him. We're going to look now at the garments itself. It mentions fine linen, of course, woven. But then there are these interesting details, particularly at the hem, right? You have little woven pomegranates and bells interchanged, one then the other. The pomegranates weighted down the garment. And as a priest, he could not expose his nakedness. So these garments were kept low by the weight of the pomegranates. The bells had a very specific purpose. The bells rung every time the priest moved. Even the slightest movement would set these bells a ringing. So he was like Tinkerbell everywhere he went. They served a very specific purpose, though, on the Day of Atonement. 
In verse 35, we hear that the bells are to prevent the high priest from dying. Now, in the text of verse 35, it says entering the holy place, but that's actually a reference to the Holy of Holies. It's not uncommon for Scripture to refer to the place of the ark as the holy place, but it's the Holy of Holies, as we call it. The bells had a purpose in that context. When the man walked into that space, the Holy of Holies, then the bells would ring. If he had walked in there without bells, he would be struck down. He would be killed because the law of God says you must have those on your garment in order to be acceptable, in order to be dressed properly. If he didn't have them, he'd die. If he has them, though, there's a secondary purpose now. As he walks into the Holy of Holies, he's there to make a sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel, one that must be acceptable and pleasing to God. If for any reason his offering was not acceptable to God, had not been done right, not been handled right, the animal was not chosen properly, whatever they might have done wrong, If he offers something that's unacceptable to the Lord, he would be killed on the spot. God would strike him down in the Holy of Holies. If that were to happen, no one else in Israel could go in after him. And no one would know what had happened. So they tied a rope around his leg and they had the bells. They listened for the bells. If the bells ever stopped tinkling for very long, they pulled him out. Because they had to assume he must have died because you wouldn't stay in there for no reason. And you certainly wouldn't stay in there without moving. The headgear was also intended to mark him for duty and to provide spiritual cover. The front of it had that plate that said, Holy to the Lord, and he wore that with a sash and a tunic of fine linen on his body. All of these details were intended to represent not only his position, but also to consecrate, that is to set him apart as holy, to cover him for sin. The priests, apart from the high priest, wore the costume on the left. Less ornate, but still prescribed. We read that in just verses 40 through 43, the last thing we read tonight. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. You shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them for glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, and they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them fine linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. So just like the high priest, they had to wear these special garments. They had to wear linen breeches and all these additional pieces. The point of all of this was that they would then be covered from uh, their nakedness would be covered or they would be clothed in this way. The reason all of these things are being done ties back to a picture that begins in Genesis chapter three. In the garden, when man and woman sinned, they immediately discovered their nakedness. By their sin, they had become indebted to their creator, God being perfectly just, perfectly righteous. All sin must be judged if he is to be true to himself. He cannot overlook sin and fail to judge it, for that would be injustice. So being just requires that he bring judgment against all sin. And God's perfection is manifested into creation by his word. And his word cannot be delivered and not be truth. So if God is perfect and he brings into his creation his own word, his word has to be true. It has to come to reality or he would be less than perfect. His word would not represent him. Therefore, when God said to Adam that eating this fruit would mean death, then by God's own word, the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin are death. Why are the wages of sin death? Because God said they would be. And now that truth has been established and cannot be changed. Therefore, when Adam and woman ate and they sinned, they then must incur the penalty that God's word proclaimed. As they sinned, they immediately became aware of the jeopardy before God for their sin. And that consciousness was reflected in their feelings of guilt and vulnerability and shame. And even before God was present in the garden, they sensed that jeopardy and They hid from God once he did appear. So all of that instinctive reaction was to a spiritual change made true by God's word. It's the same we feel today. When we do something wrong and we know we've done something wrong, we have a feeling we can't shake. That feeling in general, though, traces back to what Adam and woman felt in that first moment of sin. Now, those feelings of vulnerability, because they now are subject to a penalty that God's word proclaimed, because of that, it led them to sense a need for physical covering. They could no longer feel at ease without a physical covering. Their spiritual exposure brought with it a physical exposure. 
a physical response. They could not cover or correct for their spiritual exposure. So they did the only other thing they could do. They sought for physical covering. You know how sometimes when you're feeling bad, you just need a hug? Where something internal is addressed at least partially by something external. And because you can't fix the internal, you'll seek the external as a compensation, at least in part. And that's a rough way to understand how it was for woman and man as they came into that state of sin. They felt jeopardy in spiritual terms. They turned to a need to physically cover themselves as an indirect way of covering the shame and the guilt that their spirit was now experiencing because of their, their sin. Well, when the Lord comes into the garden, he gives them a covering of animal skins to address that feeling of insecurity. And he made those animal skins available to them, we're told, in Genesis 3.21, by the sacrifice of an animal. God sacrificed an animal, spilling its blood and using the skins to clothe man and woman. That sacrifice was the first physical death of God's creation, made necessary because of sin. So the blood of the sacrifice was a temporary spiritual covering for Adam and woman, while the skins of the animal became a physical covering for man and woman. Through that example, we learn about the relationship between sin and blood and covering And you see that now represented in the priests, the ones who are called to administer in the tabernacle the ritual of letting of blood for the temporary covering of sin. And that spiritual atonement made possible their own physical covering, which is their consecrated role as priests. Let me explain what I mean. Sin in any form immediately makes death necessary. So God has to make an escape possible for sinful man for the wrath of God, that requires a payment for sin. And according to Scripture, the life is in the blood, so the blood has to be spilled. Secondly, the sacrifice itself must be a substitute that is without sin itself. So I can't take someone else who's sinful and sacrifice them on my behalf. I have to take something that's innocent. Animals play that role temporarily under the law. They were creatures that were not capable of sinning against God's law. And yet they are under the curse that God has proclaimed against the whole earth. And so they are not able to fully solve the problem of sin, for they themselves are also due to be destroyed for sin's sake. So they are acceptable, but they cannot put sin away altogether. Finally, the sacrifice has to be offered in a pure and holy manner, apart from sin. Otherwise, the sacrifice is defiled. So in the law, the priest had to consecrate themselves. The high priest had to sacrifice for himself before he could walk into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice for the nation. So this pattern is repeated throughout. First, there must be an acceptable substitute for sacrifice. Secondly, there must be a spilling of blood. And then there has to be a covering. The covering is the blood spiritually, the clothing physically. And these garments must be in place. They must be done the way they were prescribed so that the priesthood comes in covering themselves of their own shame and sin so that they are then in a position to offer to God something that is not defiled by their own sinfulness. Christ is illustrated in all these things. He is the sinless sacrifice. He is our substitute. His blood was spilled. And he is now the undefiled high priest who, by his own perfection, can stand in the place of the Holy of Holies and serve us from afar. These men are all picturing that in their clothing and in the way that they've been told to accomplish their work in the tabernacle. Lastly, there's a picture of how we serve the Lord today in all of this. Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We serve God in God's house, just as the priests do, in a sense, by presenting our bodies to the Lord as our sacrifice. But like the priests, we have to present them in a holy manner. We must have a covering for our sin before our spiritual service is acceptable to God. What is the covering we must have before our service is acceptable? Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so in the same way that these men had to first cover themselves for, so that they could be acceptable in their service, then in their service they could apply the rituals for atoning for the sake of others. We likewise have to have an acceptable covering, which is our faith in Christ who covers us, Likewise, Christ himself is acceptably covered in his sinlessness. You can look at Romans in this way. Romans 1 through 11 is talking about how you become a man or woman of faith. Romans 12 and onward is how you serve in faith. You can't get to Romans 12 unless you've gone through Romans 1 through 11. 
And likewise, you can't serve without having already come through the atonement and having been cleansed and covered by that atonement. Next week, we'll finish through the rest of the tabernacle, as my hope, into chapter 31 and done. Having done that, we'll have spent three weeks in the tabernacle, which is challenging study. There's a lot of pictures. It's interesting at times. But after a while, you've heard a lot about cords and linen and twisted fine things. And you're ready for back into the story. Well, chapter 32 takes us back to the calf at the base of the mountain. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for patience tonight, Father, and for our endurance, our ability to study and with attentiveness. But these things, Father, may, may drive us to and understand important things now or they may come to us later. But in all things, Father, we trust that you are at work in our hearts. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, the opportunity to be called a priest and to serve in the days we have. And I pray, Father, we would be acceptable in that service as we seek to live a life that is pleasing to you in faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.